You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Got your Bibles there? Please go ahead and open them up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, as we continue in our series looking at the seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John, today we're going to be looking at the third sign. And the whole context and the whole backdrop of this third sign is this, suffering. Suffering. Jesus is about to walk into a place where people are in tremendous suffering. He's about to walk into the life of one man who is in tremendous suffering. So before we go any further, let me ask you, in what ways are you suffering in your life right now? What is it exactly that is bringing suffering into your life right now? What is bringing suffering into your life today? Because we all suffer. In one way or another, we all suffer. Suffering is a part of life. We can think of it like this up on the screen, that all of us, experience suffering because there are these four streams of suffering that are pouring into our lives all the time, continuously. Firstly, there's this, the, the reality of living in a fallen world. Romans chapter 8 says that we live in this world that's filled with brokenness and death. And so suffering pours into our life simply because we live in a fallen world. Secondly, suffering comes into our lives because of our own sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have disobeyed. All have rebelled. And how much suffering do we bring into our own lives simply because of our own sin? Thirdly, demonic opposition. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that Satan is like a roaring lion and he's seeking someone to devour. There is demonic opposition in the life of a Christian. And then fourthly, there's the reality that people sin against us. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you. And sometimes the most challenging of trials are relational trials. And so we all have this experience of suffering, living in a fallen world, our own sin, demonic opposition, other people sinning against us. So no wonder then why we suffer. No wonder why sometimes we feel like we're drowning and the water is up over our heads and that the circumstances of life are pulling us down and we have no way up and no answers. No wonder. And in those moments, isn't it so easy to forget that God is right there with us? That in those moments, God is there literally reaching his hand out to us, but So often we get so focused on our suffering and our circumstances that we forget that God is there at all. But here's the truth, and here's what we're going to see today, that no matter where we are, no matter what we are going through, Jesus Christ is there, and he is with us, and he is always, always, always our answer. Which leads us to our first point today, which is this, point number one. When I feel crushed under the weight of suffering, God comes to me with grace. When I feel crushed under the weight of suffering, God comes to me with grace. Have a look now at verse one. John chapter five, verse one, here we go. After this, 
there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So as we heard last week, Jesus, uh, he healed the official son. That was the second sign that he did. Now we're told that he's gone up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. This is the time of year where all the Jews gathered together in Jerusalem for this feast. And we're not told what feast it was, but Jerusalem is crowded. It's jammed. It's packed full of people. Have a look at verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. So in Jerusalem, by the gate where they brought the sheep in for sacrifice at the temple, there is this pool of water. And this pool is called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. And we'll see why it's called that in a few minutes. But have a look now at verse three. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So here's what this may have looked like up on the screen, that it was a pool and there was kind of two parts to it. It was a a spring-fed pool and we're told that there was a multitude of people here. So Jerusalem is packed and this pool is jam-packed and the people would have been kind of in this area here in the shade from the sun and, and we're told that there was a multitude of people, most of whom were either partially paralyzed or entirely paralyzed, they can't move. And everyone there is staring at the water. Everyone there is focused entirely on the water. Why, why, what's so special about this water? Well, verse four tells us, have a look now at verse four. Do you see verse four? Anyone have a verse four? Well, it really depends on what Bible you have. If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, then you have a verse 4. If you have another version, like the ESV or an NIV, then you don't have a verse 4. And here's why. Because in the earliest manuscripts, verse 4 is not there. So what it looks like has happened is at some point a scribe added in a footnote or some commentary to explain why all of these people are here and why they are all focused on the water. So here's what verse 4 says in the New King James Version. It says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. So all of these people are at this pool staring at the water because this is what they believe. But there's nothing, there's nothing in the earliest manuscripts to suggest any of this. That an angel came down from heaven every once in a while and got in the pool and kind of stirred up the pool and made it healing water so that the first person, not the second or the third, but only the first person who got in would be healed. There's nothing to suggest that this appears to be a superstition. But it was a superstition that many people believed. I mean, this is why they are all here. That's why they're gathered all here. All of these suffering people are spending all of their time, day after day after day after day, staring at this water, waiting for it to stir. Have a look now, verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So now the text focuses in on just one man, a man who had been either partially paralyzed or fully paralyzed for 38 years. Verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there, okay, 
So we know Jesus came up to Jerusalem because of the feast. Now we see he has come to Bethesda. So consider it. The Son of God has come to Bethesda. God is here. The one who actually has the power to heal, he's here. And nobody notices. Nobody calls out for mercy. Nobody asks to be healed because everyone is staring at the water. Everyone has placed their hope in the water. So Jesus kind of navigates through the crowd. He makes his way over to this man, verse six. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus is God. He knows everything about this man. He knows how long he has been there. He knows all about his suffering over the last 38 years. And more importantly, Jesus knows what's in this man's heart. So he asks him a question. Look what he asks in verse 6. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now obviously Jesus knows that this man is here because he wants to be healed. Jesus knows that. So why is he asking him this question? Well, here's why. To draw out his heart, to expose his heart, to expose where this man has set his hope. And look how the man responds to Jesus' question. Look at verse seven. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the man says, I have no one to put me in the pool. So Jesus has drawn out his heart. He has exposed what this man is trusting in. The man is trusting in the pool. The man has set his hope on the pool. So his whole life is revolving around this pool and trying to get into this water at the right time. And meanwhile, as he's staring at the water, God is right there. God is right there with him. God is speaking right to him right now. And he has no idea. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He thinks that the most helpful thing that Jesus could do right now is to help him to get in the pool. So how does Jesus respond to this man? Look at verse eight. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Now notice, Jesus doesn't tell the man who he is. He doesn't even tell the man to believe. He just says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And look what happens next, verse nine. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. So as soon as Jesus says the words, get up, take up your bed and walk immediately, instantly the man's body was totally healed and he knew it. He could feel it. After 38 years of not being able to move, he suddenly can. After 38 years of being crushed under the weight of the suffering of not being able to move, he got up and he picked up his bed and he walked away, totally healed. So question, does God still do that today? Does God still heal people in our day? The answer is absolutely he does. There are stories in our church, there are stories in this room right now of God's miraculous healing, praise God. There are times 
when God miraculously intervenes and heals people. However, miraculous healing is the exception, not the norm. And it's not because of a lack of faith, but rather because God has at least three very important purposes for suffering in our lives, starting with this, purpose number one, to transform our character. Romans chapter eight up on the screen, Paul says, and we know that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. So Paul says all things work together for good, all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All of our suffering is working together for good. And what is our ultimate good? Our ultimate good is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. God uses suffering in our lives to transform our character so that our character more and more resembles the character of Jesus Christ. And transforming our character is one of the greatest things that God could ever do for us. Because consider it, the more our character is transformed into the character of Christ, the more we will walk in humility and contentment and peace and love and joy and the less we will walk in pride and idolatry and fear, and selfishness, and hopelessness. So how important then is it that God transforms our character? Well, it's absolutely essential. It's essential, and he uses suffering in our lives to do it. Paul Tripp refers to this as uncomfortable grace. Up on the screen, uncomfortable grace. Listen to what he says, he says, God will take us where we do not want to go in order to produce in us what we could not achieve on our own. Uncomfortable grace. God uses suffering in our lives to transform our character. But that's not the full story. Because God also uses suffering in our lives to teach us something that is so critical for us to learn that we can't really live the Christian life without it. And it can really only be learned through suffering. And here it is, that God's grace is totally sufficient for us. We see an example of this in the life of the Apostle Paul up on the screen. Paul's talking about this suffering that has come into his life and he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's talking about this suffering that has come into his life. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is. Most commentators think it was something physical that was agonizing for Paul, and he was pleading with the Lord, please. He's saying, God, please take it away. Please take it away. Please take it away. Please. God says, no, Paul, I'm not taking that away. I'm using that in your life right now. I'm gonna do something better. I'm gonna give you my grace so that you can persevere through it. So that didn't mean that Paul stopped suffering. It doesn't mean that Paul stopped hurting. It doesn't mean that Paul was not in agony at times, but here's what it does mean. 
that God's grace, God's presence, and his power was sufficient for Paul to empower him to persevere and to accomplish all that the Lord called him to do, even in the midst of his suffering. And the same is true for us. And our suffering, God comes to us with transforming grace. He's transforming and changing our character. And he comes to us with sufficient grace so we can persevere in our suffering. But that's not the whole story either. Because we also must acknowledge that there's a degree of mystery in our suffering. Romans 11, up on the screen, Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So here's what we know. We know that God is good. We know that God is sovereign. He's in control. And that somehow he's weaving everything together. He's working everything together for his glory. And there's mystery in that. We don't understand how this all works. But here's what we know. God is good. God is in control. And he's working everything together. He's weaving everything together in this story for his glory. And this story that you and I are living in right now, that's filled with things that God loves and also things that God hates, This is the story that somehow puts who God is on display better than any other story could. And so we hold on to these truths that God is good, that God is in control, and he's working everything together for his glory. Knowing this helps us to remain stable in our suffering. Knowing this, it places stability under our feet when we are suffering, like a three-part stabilizing support up on the screen. Knowing that God is good, knowing that God is in control, knowing that God is working everything together for his glory, this is stabilizing grace. Stabilizing grace for our hearts during seasons of suffering so that we can be assured that we're not living in some kind of spiraling chaos that there is purpose, it might be mysterious, but there is purpose behind what we are going through. Some of you may know the story of Joni Erickson Tata. How at 17 years old, she dove into a swimming pool and she broke her neck and she became paralyzed. Now she's 72 years old. She's been paralyzed ever since that accident. And she has spent her whole life traveling the world, meeting with people, teaching the word of God, and speaking to people on the topic of suffering, something she knows a lot about. Here's one of my favorite quotes from Joni up on the screen. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And in Joni's suffering and in Paul's suffering and in your suffering and in my suffering, God comes to us with grace that's transforming. He comes to us with grace that is sufficient and he comes to us with grace that is stabilizing. We can think of it like this up on the screen. We suffer. These streams of suffering, they're gonna keep coming. Living in a fallen world, our own sin, demonic opposition, other people sinning against us. But in our suffering, God comes to us with transforming grace. 
He's transforming our character in our suffering. God comes to us with sufficient grace so we can persevere. Amen. He comes to us with stabilizing grace as we were reminded that God is good. God is in control. God is working all things together for his glory. So no matter where we are, no matter what we are going through, Jesus Christ and his grace, his grace is always our answer especially when we feel crushed under the weight of suffering. But we also see this in the text, point number two, which is this. When I choose to walk in sin, God comes to me with a warning. When I choose to walk in sin, God comes to me with a warning. Have a look again at verse nine. And at once the man was healed, And he took up his bed and he walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So why does the text mention that it was the Sabbath? Why is that important? Well, it's important because Jesus could have come on any day, right? Could have been a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But he chose to come on the Sabbath, and we know that everything Jesus does is 100% intentional. So why did he heal this man on the Sabbath? Well, verse 10 gives us a clue. Have a look at verse 10. So the Jews, that means the religious leaders, the Jews, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. So this man, he has just been healed. And he's walking along carrying his bed. Maybe it's under his arm. Maybe he's put it over his shoulder. But he's carrying his bed. He's walking along. And it's very likely that he's drawing a lot of attention. People are staring at him. People are pointing at him. People are whispering about him. Maybe because he was healed, but most likely because he's carrying his bed. You may be thinking, well, what's the big deal about carrying a bed? Well, here's the big deal. God had given his people the Ten Commandments, And the fourth commandment says this up on the screen. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So the Sabbath was intended by God to be a blessing to his people. It was a day of rest from their normal daily vocational work. It was to be a day devoted to the enjoyment and the worship of God. But the religious leaders had taken this command and twisted it and made up their own definition of what work was so that it was no longer about resting from normal everyday vocational work, but instead they made it about avoiding anything that included any effort whatsoever. So for example, here are some things that the religious leaders said that you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to go more than 3,000 feet from your house. That was work. You couldn't pick up anything that was bigger than a small stone. That was work. You couldn't throw anything. That's work. You can't catch anything. That's work. You can't look in a mirror. Because if you look in a mirror, you might be tempted to, you might see a gray hair, and you might be tempted to pluck it out. That would be work. You can't water plants. That's work. You can't wear false teeth. Because if you wear false teeth, there's always a chance they might fall out on the ground and then you'll have to pick them up and that would be work. 
You can't climb trees, that's work. You can't swim, work. You can't clap your hands, work. You get the idea. So according to the religious leaders, if you did anything that included any kind of physical effort whatsoever, then you were working, therefore you were sinning, therefore you were defiling the Sabbath, which is absolute nonsense. It's 100% legalism, a bunch of man-made rules that do not honor or please the Lord whatsoever. So now imagine a crowd of people who are trying to follow these man-made rules, how they would respond to a man who is carrying his bed out in the open on the Sabbath through a crowd in Jerusalem during a religious feast. They would have been stunned. They would have been shocked. They wouldn't know what to do with this. And when the religious leaders realize what's going on, they confront the man. They say to him in verse 10, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, there's no doubt this man already knows this. I mean, he's grown up under the legalism of the religious leaders. He knows all their rules. But let's just try to understand where he's coming from, okay? He was paralyzed for 38 years. Five minutes ago, somebody comes out of nowhere and says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And suddenly, he's totally healed. After 38 years, he gets up, and he's probably completely bewildered. And he just did what he was told. He picked up his bed. Now he finds himself wandering through Jerusalem on the Sabbath with this bed. And now the religious leaders are all up in his face. So what's he going to do now? Well, look at verse 11. Look what he says. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. In other words, he's like, this wasn't my idea. Somebody came out of nowhere, he healed me, he told me to do this. I don't even know what I'm doing right now. So how did they respond to him? Well, look at verse 12. They asked him, who is the man? Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Notice, the attention of the religious leaders is no longer on this man. They don't care about him. The only thing that makes them more angry than someone breaking their rules is someone who's teaching others to break their rules. So the number one concern is to find whoever told this man to carry his bed and to make him pay. He's gonna pay. So they ask, who is this man? Verse, 11, verse 13, verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. So he's like, I don't know, I don't know who it was, I don't know. So the religious leaders, they let the man go. The man proceeds now to walk up to the temple, probably now without his bed. Look what happens next, verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. So now this is the second time Jesus comes to this man. The first time he comes to him to heal him, but this time he comes to him with a warning. Verse 14, and he said to him, see, you are well. In other words, hey, hey, look at you. You were paralyzed for 38 years and you just walked all the way from the pool. You walked, you walked from the pool all the way to the temple. Look at you, you're healed. Look what he says next, verse 14. Sin no more. So that seems to be coming out of nowhere. One moment Jesus seems to be celebrating that this man just walked from the pool to the temple now he's talking about his sin. 
Well, maybe these two statements are not as unrelated as they might seem. Because most commentators agree that when Jesus says, sin no more, he's talking to the man about some specific sin that was somehow related to his 38-year illness. Because look what Jesus says next in verse 14. He says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you implying that this man had sinned in some specific way and that his sin was then somehow related to his 38-year illness. Now, we have to be careful here because we all experience illness. We all experience sickness simply because we live in a fallen world. So it's not the case that all illness is the result of our own sin. Absolutely not. Sickness entered the world through the sin of Adam. So in that sense, sickness is the result of original sin, and we all experience sickness simply because we live in a fallen world. But in some cases, the Bible tells us that some sickness is the consequence of specific sin. One example of this is when Paul tells the Corinthians that because they were taking the Lord's Supper irreverently, that many of them were weak, some of them were ill, and that some of them had even died. And so when Jesus says to this man, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, he's likely referring to a specific sin that Jesus knows about and that this man knows about. And he's warning him, stop walking in that sin. And that if he doesn't, then something far worse then 38 years of paralysis will happen to him. But what could be worse than being paralyzed for almost 40 years? 40 years is a long time. What could be worse than not being able to move for 40 years? Well, Romans chapter 6 up on the screen. For the wages of sin is death. The wages, this is something that we earn. It's a wage. The wages of sin, what we earn from our disobedience to God, living as though God doesn't exist. The wages of sin is death. And so does that just refer to physical death? Well, look what Jesus had to say about the wages of sin. Matthew 25. And these will go away into eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. The wages of sin is death. Death here refers to the second death, eternal punishment. That's the wages of sin. And so let's continue in verse 23 here. For the wages of sin is death, eternal punishment. But the gift of God is eternal life. So the wages of sin is eternal punishment. The gift of God is is eternal life. Those who place their faith in Jesus Christ receive forgiveness of sins. They receive eternal life. Where is life found? Right here, in Christ Jesus our Lord. For all who will place their faith in him for the forgiveness of sins. For all who will believe who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross on their behalf. And so what does this look like practically? Well, Romans 10 if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that doesn't mean just saying Jesus is Lord. 
if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That comes from believing that Jesus is God, that he is the Son of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you confess with your mouth that he is your Lord, that he is your master, that he is God, that you are surrendering your life to him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, you're giving your life to him. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you believe that Jesus is the son of God who came from heaven, who gave himself over to the cross to pay our sin debt, to take the wages of our sin upon himself so that all who believe in him could be healed, all who believe in him can be saved, all who believe in him can inherit eternal life. If you believe that and you believe that three days later he rose up from the grave, defeating sin, defeating Satan, defeating death, if you believe in him, then you will be saved you will inherit eternal life. And if you are here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, the free gift of God is being offered to you today. How do you receive it? Through faith. Confessing that he is Lord, that he is your Lord, surrendering your life to him, turning away from sin, placing your faith in what he accomplished for you on that cross and you too will receive eternal life. I pray that many here today will receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this man to warn him about his specific sin. Now here's a question for all of us. Has God been speaking to you about a specific sin in your life? What sin in your life has God been speaking to you about? We can think of it this way up on the screen. It's so easy to fall into this trap where, where, where we, we look at God's ways. When God calls us to walk in obedience, we look at God's ways and we, we, are, can, we can fall into this trap of thinking, this is just a bunch of rules. Like, this is so oppressive, you know, to do what God wants me to do, to walk in obedience to him. And we can start to think that actual freedom is, is found in disobedience, that fun is found in disobedience. If I can just disobey God, then I will be set free from all of these rules. This is the trap. This is the deception of sin because this is the truth up on the screen. That when we walk in disobedience, yes, there are fleeting pleasures. There are pleasures, but they're fleeting. They don't last. They're empty. And as we walk in disobedience, here's the risk. A hardened heart. A hardened heart. As we walk in disobedience, it's kind of like if you're boiling water and you take the pot off the stove, you take it outside, you put it in the snowbank. It starts to cool down quickly and then it eventually freezes solid like a stone. The longer we walk in willful disobedience, the quieter the voice of the Spirit becomes. When at first he's loud and he's saying, repent, return, come back, come back. His voice gets quieter and quieter as our hearts get harder and harder. We become less and less interested in the things of God. Drift away, drift away, drift away. 
But here's the truth. It's not about rules. When God calls us to, to walk in obedience, and it's not about rules, it's about relationship. It's about walking in relationship with the living God. He's not calling us to rules, he's calling us to blessing. He's saying, I have designed you to live this way in relationship with me. This is the way you're supposed to live. In obedience to me, God knows a thing or two about how we are to live. So when God calls us to obedience, he's calling us to blessing. He's saying, this is where love is. This is where real peace is, real joy, real hope, real safety, security, and satisfaction is found here, never out here, only walking with God and walking in his ways. So when God calls us to repent, when God calls us to come out of the darkness and to return to him, it's not to shame us, it's to bless us. He calls us to blessing. So hear this today. No matter where we are at, no matter what we are going through, Jesus Christ is always our answer. No matter where you are at today, no matter what you are going through, Jesus Christ is always your answer. The answer is always returning to him because that's where the blessing can be found. And so how does this man respond to Jesus warning him about sin? We'll look at verse 15. Verse 15. Look what it says. Does it say he fell on his knees and repented? It doesn't. It says the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. So we don't know the man's motive in this. Could have been that he really feared the religious leaders and, he, so, and so when he found out it was Jesus, he just ran to them and ratted Jesus out. Or it could have been that he's in just a bewildered state, just kind of remembered that they wanted to know who it was, so he just kind of wandered over and told them. We don't know what his motive was, but either way, this moment right here, right here in the text, is the turning point in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. This moment right here. And why? Look at verse uh, 16. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So the persecution of Jesus by the religious leaders, it starts right here. So why did Jesus heal this man? Why did he heal him on the Sabbath? And why did he tell him to carry his bed through a crowd in Jerusalem during a feast? Well, here's why. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he has come to save the world. So yes, Jesus came to this man in his suffering to bring him grace. And yes, Jesus came to this man in his sin to bring him a warning. But in the providence of God, what's happening here is actually much bigger than that. Because Jesus also healed this man and told him to carry his mat on the Sabbath so that this man would carry his mat all the way to the religious leaders who would then set their sights on Jesus and persecute him all the way to the cross. So this third sign is not just about one man's physical healing. Rather, it's about Jesus Christ advancing his mission to bring spiritual healing to the nations through his cross. 
It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, healing one man and starting a chain reaction of events that will lead to the cross and healing for all who will come to him and believe and receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith in him. Let's pray. So Father in heaven, we thank you so, so much for your word. We thank you so, so much for the truth of the gospel, that you have made a way that, that we aren't trapped in the wages of our sin, but instead, instead you've made the way that we can receive eternal life by sending your son to take those wages so that through faith in him, we can be forgiven. Through faith in him, we can have eternal life, not eternal punishment. And so God, I pray even right now, many would lay hold of this free gift of forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace. And we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.